Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. It's Dr. Lauren Baldus, Medical Director of Education here at SWARP, and this is a, another episode of the SWARP webinar series. I have joining with me today Dr. Rob Sogtrop. He's a PGY-5, almost finished, in the Western Emergency Medicine Training Program, and he's here today to talk to you about antidepressant overdoses. Thanks so much for joining us today, Rob. Thanks, Lauren. Okay, so as we do, just to help frame some of the learning points, we're going to start with a case. So Dr. Sogtrop, take it away. Sure. So imagine that you've been dispatched to a call on Western campus. The call is initially for an 18-year-old who is presenting agitated. You arrive on scene and find that he had gotten into a fight with his girlfriend and then took what was left of his medications in a suicide attempt approximately one hour ago. Roommate called EMS when the patient became more tearful and agitated, and that's when you arrive on scene. On exam, you see an 18-year-old male who's screaming, appears very flushed and sweaty. They're quite tearful and yelling for you to go away, and they won't give you a history. You do get a bit of a history from the roommate, however, and apparently the patient is on both Ciprolex and Wellbutrin, otherwise has no real past medical history and no allergies. So it just takes a little bit of time here and, and think about how you would approach this patient. All right, so Dr. Sotrop, what are some of the things that the crew should have in their minds? Yeah, so this is, this is probably something a lot of people have uh, been in this situation before, but I think the big things to, to keep in mind is to always call for backup help and, and other allied services here. Do your best to verbally de-escalate things as much as possible, and, and most importantly, never put yourself in any harm's way here. Um, and then as for, uh, for ACP crews that may be listening, um, it, these are people that may need some sort of sedation via the Combative Patient Medical Directive, and, and we'll discuss that a little bit later in the presentation. Okay, so that frames what we're going to be talking about. Dr. Sokhtrov, why did you pick this topic as something to bring up for a webinar for our paramedics? So I think the big reason is is we see these presentations so much, both pre-hospitally and in the emergency department, and these are super common medications that a huge percentage of the population are on. And I think it's really easy to become a bit desensitized to this population. And I just wanted to kind of highlight when things can go wrong and what are some specific medications that can really cause some life-threatening complications and when maybe your spidey senses should kind of perk up a little bit more when you hear certain medications. Because in overdose, some of these medications can cause some pretty serious problems, such things as arrhythmias leading to cardiac arrest, hyperthermia, and then some pretty serious decreased levels of consciousness and seizures as well. So I just wanted to take a little bit of time to kind of run through when you should be a little bit more worried when you see this, this patient presenting to you. So what most people are going to be on is some form of an SSRI, which is a fairly common medication, but one drug that's been gaining a lot more popularity lately has been a medication called Wellbutrin or Bupropion. You may have seen this on some patients' medication lists. Now, SSRIs work primarily by blocking serotonin, but Wellbutrin is a little bit different. And instead of blocking serotonin, it actually blocks norepinephrine and dopamine. It's also used as a second-line antidepressant, but it's kind of popping up all over the place in things like diet aids, smoking cessation, uh, used for various sexual dysfunction and in ADHD medications. And like a lot of things that become more popular, it's starting to be abused on the streets because it is a, a very cheap and long-lasting medication. And it can be taken through all sorts of ways, basically smoking, snorting, injecting. And it is a, a structurally quite different from antidepressants and actually very similar structurally to methamphetamine or crystal meth. 
So the big reason why Wellbutrin is worse than, than most SSRI overdoses is there's just huge increases in the number of complications that can come from this. So when comparing bupropion or Wellbutrin with, with other SSRIs, there are much higher rates of things like seizure needing to be intubated, all sorts of cardiac dysrhythmias, longer-term delirium, and then eventually death, unfortunately, as well. That's great, Dr. Subtrop. Can you just highlight maybe what some of the more common SSRIs you're comparing bupropion to would be? Sure, yeah. The most common ones that you're going to see are things like citalopram, escitalopram, fluoxetine, paroxetine, and sertraline. Those are usually the most common ones that you're going to see people on. That's great. I'm sure we've all seen those medications. So just to sort of highlight some of those certain different types of classes of medications, because we kind of all generally throw them in together. And I think that's why this is really important to talk about why Wellbutrin is worse, just like you have here on the title. Okay, that's great. So with that background, let's jump back into our case. Sure. So say you've got everything all settled down on the scene and, and are transferring the patient to the hospital. While en route, they have about 45 second generalized tonic-clonic seizure. Shortly after the seizure, they are still quite confused at GCS of 8. Take some time to think about what you'd do in this situation. So the first thing you do whenever there's a, a status change in your patient would be to reassess the patient. So sticking to your basics, it's always your ABCs first. So airway management and reassessing the patient's vitals. So when you do reassess the vitals, you find that the heart rate's shot all the way up to 160. A repeat blood pressure shows things have dropped to 80 on 40. Respirate is 24. Temperature is 38.5 and their oxygen is 94% on room air. You do get a point of care glucose as well, which shows uh, 6.7. You do notice with the heart rate moving fast, you do decide to get an ECG and you notice that things look much wider on the ECG than, than they had before. I get the sense, Dr. Sobtrap, that you're going to tell us why there's been this change in the patient condition. Yeah, I'll take the next couple slides to run through kind of how the pathophysiology progresses with Wellbutrin. So in general, most people at, at therapeutic range or, or with very small overdoses will have relatively mild symptoms, but things can escalate pretty quickly with relatively small increases in doses. In general, things will start with more neurologic symptoms first, getting more agitated and delirious at first, and then progressing to seizures quite quickly. You can often see this only with uh, three to four grams of Wellbutrin, which when you're thinking about 500 milligram tablets, it's pretty easy to get up into those numbers in an overdose situation. Um, once you progress past some of the more neurologic symptoms, you do progress pretty quickly into more cardiac symptoms. And that's things like initially getting more tachycardic and hypertensive, and then um, they actually flip the other way and will, will go to more of a cardiac collapse where they become quite hypotensive and need a lot of support just to maintain their blood pressure. So early on, these patients are often quite agitated when speaking more about the CNS toxicity. And then if things kind of get above the three gram ingestion, they can often present in more of a status epilepticus and multiple seizures. Um, it's even common in these people, actually, there's a quite a lot of reported seizures, even at therapeutic doses. So it doesn't take much of an overdose for these people to be at risk for seizures. And these seizures can happen pretty much any time within 24 hours after ingestion. So even if they call you eight hours after, after their potential ingestion, they are still pretty high risk for a seizure. These seizures, however, though, are usually responsive to benzodiazepines. 
Moving on a little more to some of the cardiac side effects here, and this usually happens once you're kind of up over the three to four gram range. Initially, they'll start with tachycardias and an elevated blood pressure, but these people also become very prone to, to more ventricular arrhythmia. So those are things like ventricular fibrillation and ventricular tachycardia. And then late in ingestions, they can get really refractory hypotension where not even fluids are going to be able to bring up their blood pressure. And then finally, they can actually just show up in, in more of a cardiogenic shock. And that's where the heart is just really unable to pump well enough to, to maintain their inadequate blood pressure for them. That's a great rundown of the pathophys, Dr. Sogtrop. Thanks so much. Uh, let's talk about the general management then of these patients. Sure. So um, we'll get into some of the specifics after, but I think going back to basics is always going to be important with, with any patient here. So always sticking to your ABCs, your vitals, and getting a glucose, and then making sure these patients are always on the monitor. They're super prone to all sorts of different types of arrhythmias, and it's going to be really important to pick that up. There's a really wide range of patient presentations. These people can go from completely benign and very stable to extremely agitated and grossly altered and unstable. Just remember that there's a really high risk of seizures in these patients and they can be quite agitated, so making sure that you and the rest of your crew are safe. And then all of these people should be transported to hospital no matter how they look. And then the other big thing to get is a, a good collateral history from the scene of anyone that may have any other information about the time of ingestion and the amount of ingestion and, and getting pill bottles and the medications and when those were filled and, and the time and amount uh, that were in each bottle. That's great, Dr. Sotrap. And as you told us before, it's really important to know what the dose is, to know are we in the lethal range, not in the lethal range, etc. So even if the patient is still asymptomatic when they're transported and transfer of care has occurred, for us to know in hospital that there's been three grams or more is super important. That really impacts what happens to the patient downstream as to where they need to be monitored, etc. Okay, that's great. So let's talk about some specific ALS-PCS care considerations then. Sure. So the first medical directive we're going to touch on is going to be your nausea and vomiting medical directive. The big things here is the patient must be unaltered for any sort of treatment here. And now it is mentioned that the contraindications are any sort of overdose on antihistamines or anticholinergics or tricyclic antidepressants. So Dr. Sogtrop, does Wellbutrin qualify for this very specific contraindication that's listed in the medical directive for gravel specifically? Technically, no. However, the bottom line, and kind of paraphrasing here from an ASMAC on uh, July 30th, 2013, where a young patient took an intentional overdose causing vomiting, for which the paramedic was kind of wondering whether or not to administer dimenhydrinate, choosing not to administer gravel in a mixed drug overdose or an unknown agent is also a very reasonable option. And if you're ever unsure, this is a great time to always patch your base hospital physician to have a discussion with them about this. That's great. And Dr. Sogtrop, is there anything else that paramedics should know about the consideration for treating nausea vomiting? Yeah, the, the one big thing here would be, especially when it comes to ondansetron, would be the risk of a long QT. Great. And so as you likely all recall, because you recently had your MCME in which ondansetron was introduced, we discussed the QT in the context of the new drug ondansetron. And the stated contraindication in the medical directive is prolonged QT syndrome, so the history is known to the patient. This is the expectation for you to ask about and make sure the patient doesn't have this prolonged QT syndrome where it's known to the patient that they have this. 
However, if you're astute and you remember that antidepressants, pretty much all of them, and all antiemetics can increase the QT interval, and you want to either withhold on Danzatron or Gravol, this is also absolutely reasonable. As Dr. Sotrop mentioned, just make sure to document your rationale so we see this on the ACR. And Dr. Sotrop, I don't think we touched on it before, but just can you highlight again the pathophysiology behind what a long QT is? Sure, yeah. So uh, this is this comes between when you're looking at the ECG, as the QT gets longer between what we see in our QRS complex and your T wave, as that gets longer and longer, what can end up happening is if it reaches a certain point and one of those beats bef- basically starts before another one ends, it puts them at risk for going into all sorts of different arrhythmias. Um, and they can be quite dangerous ventricular arrhythmias as well. And if you remember with Wellbutrin, they are more prone to this in general. So it's something to really keep in mind when treating their nausea. All right, that's great, Dr. Sobtrop. Thanks so much for explaining that. So the bottom line is the contraindications are what needs to be followed, but now you also have this extra information regarding what a long QT is and some reasons to worry about it, and maybe to consider withholding these medications for nausea vomiting in the setting of a Wellbutrin or antidepressant overdose, in which case you may be worried about the potential arrhythmia with this condition. So are there any other medical directives, Dr. Sotrup, that uh, are to be considered in these patients? Yeah, another big one that you should probably consider would be your IV and fluid therapy medical directive. So just remember that these are great people to have IV access on if you're trained in in starting IVs, um, because there's a big potential here for hypotension or the need for IV access to potentially give medications for seizures. Another uh, big directive to think about as well would be your medical cardiac arrest directive. So making sure these people are transported and having them on the monitors and, and potentially placing pads on them as well because they are high risk for pulseless arrhythmias like ventricular fibrillation and tachycardia. That's great. And so Dr. Sotrup, if they end up in actual cardiac arrest and now you're using the medical cardiac arrest medical directive, this is one of those indications that we're highlighting this year in your MCME to remember to consider early transport. So you're leaving after the first analysis and not staying on scene for the full 20 minutes because these are potential reversible causes of arrest. So those non-opiate overdoses, in which case the situation would be if the patient's in cardiac arrest, you're leaving after the first analysis. Okay, that's great. That's a comprehensive overview of some of the medical directives to consider in these patients. And let's just touch on some of the ACP-specific medical directives to consider with this type of patient presentation. Yeah, so the the big one we'll touch on for the ACPs listening will be your combative patient medical directive. The big one that we're going to touch on here is, in our experience, midaz is probably going to be preferred over ketamine here. And that's the big reason why we'll be for the benefit of seizure prophylaxis. That's great, Dr. Sogtrup. And then just remember that our teaching with SWARP when this medical directive came out when ketamine and midazolam were your options for the combative patient and as written directly into the medical directive is that ketamine is preferred for suspected excited delirium and the severe violent psychosis. So I guess with that information there, Dr. Sogtrup, could these patients present with this severe violent psychosis, in which case paramedics might consider ketamine? Yeah, so these People, uh, as you can remember, will come in a pretty wide spectrum of presentations, and especially early on, they can present quite hot and bothered, but they also will likely progress quite quickly to things like seizures um, as well. I think if it's in a pinch and you only have one, both can work, but we usually prefer midaz in these patients as well, but we would support your decisions if it's, it's documented well. Gotcha. And that's right. I think the bottom line is that we'd support your decision. So you have multiple tools in your belt to use. 
we can give you an idea of when each tool is best and why, but especially with some of these polydrug overdoses, depending if they're that person that's charging at you and you think, yep, this person is definitely excited delirium, and then you later find out that they were on Wellbutrin, well, just tuck away this pearl for patients that midazolam may have a benefit, but use the tool that's best at the time and per your decision-making. As you saw from the previous slide, Wellbutrin can be a poor man's cocaine. And just also remember that cocaine toxicity and alcohol withdrawal are the two other reasons to consider midazolam over ketamine. So really the bottom line we're trying to get at is you've got multiple tools in your kit, use what's best at the time, make sure you document why you use which and what, and we will support your decision. All right, let's jump back into our case and find out what happened with the patient when they arrived to the hospital. Sure, yeah. So most of these people follow a fairly standard pathway once they get to the hospital. And the big things early on is going to be a lot of supportive care, so IV fluids, and then once we have an idea what their heart tracing looks like, potentially getting some antiemetics on board, and then potential GID contamination with activated charcoal if the patient is uh, awake enough and willing to take that. And then early on, there's going to be a lot of supportive stuff, working on keeping their blood pressure up with fluids and vasopressors if necessary and collecting any, uh, correcting any underlying electrolyte problems. And then having some benzos nearby just in case there are seizures. And then almost all these people are going to be admitted and stabilized first, usually for about 24 hours and placed on a Form 1 and eventually seen by psychiatry. That's great. And Dr. Sogtrap, just because activated charcoal is not something that's within the paramedic purview, do all patients with overdose receive charcoal? Are there certain time frames to know about? It kind of depends. The number we usually use is somewhere in the four-hour range. However, if it's a big enough dose and the patient's uh, taken something large or dangerous and we're concerned and there's a potentially a benefit, it usually doesn't hurt to have it on board. But just if the level of consciousness is starting to decrease, we're often a little bit careful in giving that because there is some aspiration risk. Gotcha. So all the more reason to have a really good history uh, from yourselves because you're there on scene to find out when the medication was taken to help direct that in hospital management. All right, Dr. Sotrop, any last words you want to leave everyone with? Yeah, I think if you're going to remember anything from this talk, it's just if you happen to see Wellbutrin or Bupropion on that medication list, just have your spidey senses up because they'll be a little more higher risk for decompensating and becoming unstable. Just remember that initially these people can become quite agitated and then that's often quickly followed by decreased level of consciousness and then seizures and hypotension. And all these people are going to need very prolonged monitoring in the hospital, so making sure they get to the hospital in a relatively timely fashion. Thank you so much, Dr. Sotrop, for joining us today and letting us know about all of your expertise in this area. It sounds like you've managed a couple patients with this type of overdose in hospital before. Is that right? Yeah, definitely have a few of them pop up every once in a while. Well, thanks again for coming and sharing all this uh, great pearls for us. really appreciate it. And thank you so much to the audience for joining us today. Great. Thanks a lot for having us. If you have any questions at all, please don't hesitate to contact us. My uh, email address is listed there if you have any questions on the uh, webinar here or anything at all related to education. Thanks everybody and take care.